Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, as we get started this morning, we're continuing a series uh, from the book of Galatians. Let's uh, begin our time with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you have made, and certainly we're reminded to rejoice and to be glad in it. Lord, I pray that you would bless the teaching and preaching of your word now, and God, that it might go out and fall upon the good soil of our hearts. God, that we might take what we hear and learn, and God, that we might apply it to our very lives. That God, as we exit these doors and we go out into the highways and hedges, God, that uh, your name would be magnified, your name would be glorified in all the world. God, help us to to uh, put into practice each and every day the things that we learn from your word. Lord, I ask that today that if there's somebody in this room or somebody who's listening online who has never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, that today that might be their heart's desire, God, that you might give them the wisdom and the desire, God, that you might work in their lives, that they would place their faith and trust in Jesus today. God, I pray that you'll be with me. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight because you are my strength and you are my redeemer. God, we love you and we thank you and praise you for all that you'll do. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray and ask it. And for his sake, amen. Last week, we began um, a new series. Uh, If this is your first week attending, we began a new series uh, of messages from Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. And we discussed last week, we began to discuss the significance of this idea of grace within the church. But we also uh, took time to debunk, if you please, the ideologies that basically talked a lot about legalism and false teaching that was running rampant in this church. And by the way, remember, this church was very young. The Apostle Paul had started the church, he goes away and then he hears what's taking place. And so he writes this letter back to the church saying, hey guys... I'm astonished. In fact, in chapter 1, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from the gospel that you just received. And so he's he's astonished at what's taking place. And so he writes back to them. And he's writing to because, quite honestly, his call to ministry, his authority as apostle, and even the message that he was preaching was under question uh, by that group that we talked about last week, these Jewish Christian converts, and and we talked about them known as Judaizers, and and if you remember, we talked about the fact that Judaizers are those who quite honestly saw Christianity as 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 an extension, if you please, of Judaism, and so it was it was kind of this idea of uh, that Jesus Christ had only come to add on to their existing laws, to their existing rituals, to the existing rules, and so it was really uh, uh, something that. Really, quite honestly, you'll see today uh, that wasn't uh, according to the real or the true gospel. And so Paul writes, and in fact these Judaizers, they were the ones that were teaching that if a Gentile wanted to be saved, that they had to undergo the ritual of circumcision, they had to subject themselves to the law of Moses, they had to adopt the rituals and the ceremonies of religion, so to speak, they had to practice the rules uh, and regulations of the religion, which... If you know anything about Jewish history, you know that that also included dietary restrictions. Certain things that they uh, adhered to that they could and they couldn't eat. And so they were wanting to place all of these things on Gentiles 
in order to be saved. So they were saying their, their, their position was that you can trust Jesus Christ, but you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this in order to be saved. But truly, folks, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Romans chapter 5 too, the grace wherein you and I stand can only be accessed by faith through Jesus Christ and Him alone. In fact, Ephesians 2.8, we, show, we showed this verse last week, but Ephesians 2.8 actually says it best by saying, for by grace are you saved, are we saved, right? Through faith and not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. And so we saw this, Galatians 1 last week we were looking at reminds us that because of God's amazing grace, in fact in verse number 4 it reminds us that Jesus Christ gave himself up for our sins that he might deliver. Remember we talked about the fact that the word deliver means rescue. Jesus died on the cross is what Paul's saying to this church. He says, guys, remember it was Jesus who died on the cross in order to deliver you or to rescue you from this present world, this present evil world. And he says he did it according to the will of his Father. And so there's nothing, here's the posit that we need to take away. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that you or I can do that would ever be enough. Have you ever felt that way? Even in the home, you feel like, I could never do enough, I could never do enough to please Dad. I could never do enough, I could never do enough to please mom. Or I could never do enough to please my wife. Or I could never do enough to please my husband. And we could go on and on. Have you ever felt that way? The reality is, the good news is that you and I could never do enough to earn forgiveness or to receive it or to receive this pardon, so to speak. So everyone in this room, whether you're a believer yet or not, should be thankful that Jesus died on the cross. Right? As one song says, and we sing about Cornerstone, there's another song that says, Jesus, only Jesus can do that. And I'm thankful for that. As Christ followers, our desire really should not be to do this or not to do that because I say you have to do it or some other guy or growl says you have to do it. But our desire should be out of love in response to what he's already done for us. See, the reason I, I, I ought to live my life in a way that brings God honor and glory is not necessarily we know God's a jealous God, but it's not because God's jealous. It's because I'm so thankful that he loved me so much that he gave his son for me. That's why I live that way, right? I don't live that way because my wife says if I don't, I'm not getting dinner. That might happen anyway, right? If, I, if I'm not careful, I might not get dinner. But the reality is, it makes no difference what I do. I could never earn my way to heaven. I could never appease God. I could never be approved by him by doing, 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 doing. Because Jesus said on the cross, it is what? Oh, I'm so thankful. He said it's finished. Truly the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I finished the message last week, you remember? I said it is life-changing. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And you say, why do you rattle that off so much? Because it's really, be honest with you, I know people say life verse. I used to say it was my life verse, but I like all the verses now. Right? It's like people get a pet verse, and I used to love to 
like I would sign Greg, 2 Cor 517. 2 Corinthians 517, I would say that was my life verse. Because the truth is that if we are in Christ, we are new creatures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Honestly, if Jesus comes in, there's going to be a difference the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we act. In fact, Jesus Christ has freed us so that we can live differently. You know, he's the one that freed us. In fact, there was a bunch of Jews who thought they needed to be under the yoke of bondage. But Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 11 in verse 28 and following. He said this, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He said, you got a problem? You're trying to work your way to heaven? I got news for you, it's not going to work. He says, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye, this is really cool, he says, you shall find rest for your souls. Don't we live in an area that keeps you just like, like I said last week, like the little hamster on the wheel? I look out here at VDOT and Chemung, they're like this, because they got a three-week window. But if we're not careful, we do our spiritual journey the same way. We treat it like this way. And sometimes, you know, when the hamster hadn't been fed, the hamster never approaches the wheel. When the hamster's bouncing off the plastic box that we've got him in, hopefully you've got some air ventilation for that little thing, or he's not going to be doing the wheel much longer either, Right? When he's fed or she's fed, they get on that wheel and they start going around. If we're not careful, we become the proverbial spiritual hamster who's trying to work that wheel enough to appease or to be approved by God. But Jesus says, he says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But notice what he says in verse 30. He says... For my yoke is easy. Oh, I'm thankful that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Oh, listen, once Christ comes in, the truth of the matter is that you and I, I said it at the end of our message last week, you and I ought to be living and loving like Jesus lived and loved. Not like the world. The world will live and love you and leave you. Jesus said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And so this morning, I want us to look at Galatians chapter 2. Look at with me very quickly. Notice in verse number 1 and following, the Bible says, then 14, years after, then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Mm, interesting, he takes Titus. Watch this. He says, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately to them... Which were, out, which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, that's the key there, being a Greek, was um, compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty or our freedom, the word liberty there, speaking of our freedom that we had in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepted no man's person, for they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. 
These guys who I talked to and I shared with them what I had been doing, they had nothing to say. They had nothing to add to the message that I gave. Notice what he says. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostle, apostleship of the circumcision, uh, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. He's speaking that the fact that Peter was called to share the gospel with the Jews and that Paul says, I was called to share the gospel with Gentiles. But notice what he says, verse number 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do. Paul says, hey, I've already been doing that, remembering the poor. That was nothing new to me. And so right away, Paul is telling our believers, as he and Barnabas, they go up to uh, Jerusalem, that they take Titus with them. And I'll be real honest with you, there's a lot of scholarly guys and ladies who have debated this issue. Well, was this the time that he went up in Acts chapter 15 or another time? The truth is that it doesn't make a difference. That's why we've got to be careful of becoming snack shop theologians, focusing on the wrong thing. It doesn't matter whether it was in conjunction with the first church council in Acts chapter 15 or whether it was some other time. The point is that Paul takes Titus with him. And here's what he says in verse 2. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, we went up, I went up by revelation. What he's saying is that God told me to go. No man called me. No man questioned me. No man asked me what was going on. He says, God told me to go up there. And so we went. And he says, I didn't go to receive instruction from some apostle. I didn't go to be affirmed by some apostle. God sent me to defend his work. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem. And you say, well, why would Paul go up to Jerusalem, whether it was Acts 15 or some other time? Think about this, guys. As Paul and Barnabas had gone around and established churches everywhere, think about all the lives that had been changed, all the people that had received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Think about all the churches that had been established. If now we circle back and say, just kidding. Jesus didn't die for your sin uh, alone. You have to trust him, but you also have to do this. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you the whole story. What do you think the results would be? The results would be catastrophic because we're all of like-minded faith, right? We would say, you were a liar. Paul, you lied to us. You told us that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and so now you're saying i got to be circumcised. Now you're saying i got to adhere to the law. Now you're saying i got to do this and do that and do this to be saved. That's not what you said. It would have been catastrophic. And so I love to play this out in my mind. It's as if Paul walks in and he says, uh, Gentlemen, allow me to introduce Exhibit A. Titus, a Gentile who was not compelled to be circumcised, so here we have Titus, who without religion, without rules, without rituals, was saved by the grace of God, amen? But he was also called to preach the gospel. And so Paul says, listen, God called Titus and used him to do all these things, and he didn't require him to be circumcised. Now, why are you coming in, seeking us out privately, 
to kind of, these Judaizers are coming in and they're trying to get us back to fall into this idea of bondage, right? They're coming in the church and doing these things. And, and so the reality is that in verse 5, Paul says that he refused, notice verse 5, he refused to subject himself, he refuses to subject Titus, and he refuses to subject anybody. Notice what he calls them. He says, uh, the false brethren. He says, I refuse to subject myself to the false brethren. And he mentions that early on in verse number 4. He says, and because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus that they may bring us into bondage. He says, hey, these jokers came up and the reality is that they wanted us to go back and to live into bondage. And so Paul He's fighting to preserve the true gospel, the pure gospel. And I think it's important to notice this, because here's where, here's where we get off track. We say, well, that doesn't really mean anything to me, because we're not sitting around fighting about circumcision. Pastor, we're not talking about foods that we can eat and we can't eat and all these things. So what's, what's the big deal for us today when we look at Galatians? The reality is these Judaizers were not telling uh, Titus or Paul or these Gentile believers that they had to go out and break the law of the land. They weren't telling them to do bad things. You remember in their mind they thought Jesus was an addition to their religion and so all they're saying is hey you need to do this and do this do this just like we've been doing it. Paul says no that's not the gospel. That's a lie. That's not what that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus communicated to us. And so he's standing up for the pure gospel. And the point is this. We live in 2019 and if we're not careful there are a lot of people who will come down the road and tell you you need to do this. You need to do that. Oh, you're not Oh. I see today that the pastor's not wearing a tie. How could he ever talk to you about Jesus? You're 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 going well, we don't even want to talk about where you're going. Without the time. See, we've got to be very careful, folks, that we don't get our focus off on the wrong thing. Well, I didn't like that hymn that they sang today. Well, just stick around. Maybe you'll like next week's hymn. I didn't like the Cornerstone song. Stick around. Maybe you'll like next week's song, right? We get so focused on everything except for Jesus. If we're not careful, we're literally stepping back in time to Galatians. And we're following the rules and the rudiments of man rather than the word of God. Oh, we must be very, very careful because if we're not, legalism and false teaching can creep in and undercut the, beautiful, the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, which we'll see here in a few weeks, Paul writes this. He says, stand fast therefore in the liberty. Again, that word speaking of our freedom, wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled, notice the word, again. He says, don't go back. Don't go back. Jesus said his burden is light. He says, come, everyone who's under heavy burden, right? He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. He says, don't go back again with the yoke of bondage. Folks, we cannot allow ourselves to fall into the lie and the trap of legalism that says we must do this or not do that. You can list it. Everything under the sun in order to obtain God's forgiveness and favor. That's not biblical. Look at verse 9. Verse number 9 says, And when James, Cephas, and John, the three pillars, you know, 
Peter, James, and John, says when they, when they actually perceived, that word perceived means understood, when they actually understood that God had given me a ministry, the grace that God had given me to go and share the gospel with the Gentiles, notice it says, it says that they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. Two verses earlier, it says they could add nothing to me. I shared everything, uh, uh, the same gospel that I was preaching to the Gentiles, I shared it and they couldn't add anything. They said, yeah, you're right. And so here's the point, at the end of it all, these pillars, so to speak, of the church actually stood with the Apostle Paul that salvation by grace through faith alone was the true gospel. And for that, I'm very thankful. Galatians 2 has Paul defending the gospel against legalism. But he also, the gospel is being defended against hypocrisy. Look at chapter 2 again. Last week, you remember, I closed by telling you that in verse number 11 of chapter 2, the apostle Paul says he withstood Peter to his face. You remember? And so I kind of reminded us of why he did it. But let's look at what the Bible says here in verse 11. It says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was, with, because he was to be blamed. For before the certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him. Insomuch, notice it even has an effect. He says, insomuch that Barnabas... The senior saint, Barnabas, even so much that Barnabas was also carried away with their dissimulation or their separation. He says, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all. It's a public thing. He doesn't, he doesn't take Peter behind closed doors. He says it right in front of them all. He says, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews... Why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And so he's defending against hypocrisy. And here's the thing. If you have your Bible, flip back to uh, Acts chapter 11. I want you to see something. Because in Acts chapter 11, we have the church at Antioch. And the church at Antioch, here's the cool thing. It's a great church. But the church at Antioch is a predominantly Gentile church. Which means what? They're not adhering to the rules and the rituals and the regulations that are being established by these Judaizers. And by the way, does anybody know what the church, the first church that sent out missionaries, which church that was? The church at Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, they, they send Paul and Barnabas out on the first missionary journey. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, verse number 20, uh, 26, in verse number 26, the Bible says that the disciples or the followers of Christ were called Christians first at Antioch. This is a great church. And so at some point, here's the thing. Peter's either invited by Paul and Barnabas to come or he, uh, he actually just shows up and starts teaching on his own because this is what he's talking about over here in Galatians chapter 2. He's saying, hey... You came in, you were fellowshipping, you were eating, you were hanging out with the Gentiles, but then when certain Jews showed up, you separated yourself. So what's going on? The Bible says that, look at, uh, look at uh, verse, back in our text, look at, uh, I want you to see this again, um, verse 12, where it says, but when they, folks, there'll always be the crowd known as they. 
that will come and oppose you. It says, but when they were come, Paul, uh, Peter essentially bugs out. He says, uh, I, can't, I can't fellowship with you right now. I still love you and I still serve Jesus with you, but I got to go over here, right? And so Paul, he says, what in the world is going on? So he stands up with him. The Bible tells us in verse 12 that he withdrew and he separated himself. Notice why? Because he feared them which were of the circumcision. Guys, please pick this up. The best part is the last part. Peter is fearing these Jewish believers? Are you kidding me? I have to ask myself, what happened to the Peter of Acts chapter 4? Who was bold to proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition? Because we're up here at Acts 11 now. So what happens, what happens here in Acts chapter 4, the Peter who was bold enough to preach in the face of opposition? What happened to the Peter who was courageous enough in Acts chapter 5 who stood up and said we ought to obey God rather than man? And here's the frightening thing. Does anybody remember what takes place in Acts chapter 10? In Acts chapter 10 is where we see Peter, he has this vision three times from God, right? He has this vision and then he has this encounter with Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. And so the short version of Acts chapter 10, that story there, is that Peter has these three visions of this food that he's not supposed to eat. It's ceremonially unclean. And he actually says, while he's having these visions, God says, hey, Peter, go out and kill, slay, and eat. And Peter says, no way, God. I would never eat anything that's unclean. And God's response is, Peter, whatever I have blessed and cleansed, don't you ever call it unclean. Stay with me. At the same time, Peter has this vision after the three visions of eating. The angel of the Lord, this, this vision says, Peter, by the way, there's going to be three men that come look for you. When they come, I want you to go with them. And so Peter prepares himself. Well, what Peter doesn't know is at the same time, Cornelius has been praying. He is a man who has been fasting. Can you imagine a Gentile who doesn't even have a relationship with God at this point? He's just a God-fearing man. He's fasting. He's praying. He's giving alms to God. He wants to know about how to have a right relationship with God. And so God, the angel tells Cornelius, he says, hey, send some men over to the town of Joppa and seek out Simon Peter. And so Cornelius says, deal, done. So he sends these men. Peter comes, stay with me, here comes Peter. And when Peter arrives, he goes into Cornelius' house, but here's what he doesn't know. Cornelius, the Gentile, has gathered all his family. He's gone out and gathered everybody out in the neighborhood. If you read it, he's got a big old crowd at his house. And Peter walks in, and I want you to see Peter's attitude when he first walks in. He has no clue what's about ready to happen. And he walks in and he says this in verse 28. You know how it, that it is unlawful, it's an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. This was Peter's idea. He says, I don't know why I'm here, but you know I can't hang out here. I can't be with you. This is against my religion. But notice what God reveals to Peter. He says, but God has showed me. Notice what God showed him. He says, but God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. 
Two ladies said amen. Do you not see the picture? It don't matter where somebody comes from, no matter what they look like, we should never call someone common or unclean. As believers, as followers of Jesus, thank you for the other four people who agreed with that, biblically. Verse 29, Peter basically asked Cornelius, why have you sent for me? He's there, and he says, God has sent me and told me that basically not to call any man unclean. And so then he says, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius says in verse number 33, he says, we're here before God to hear all things commanded of thee. He says, God said that you would come and you would tell us about him. And so we're gathered here, we're ready to hear you. And then verse 34, the iconic verse, Peter says, then Peter opened his mouth and he says, I perceive that God is not a respecter of persons. In other words, you don't have to be a Gentile to trust Jesus Christ. A Jew, you don't have to be a Jew to trust Jesus Christ. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow these laws, these rules, these rituals and everything. He says, I perceive that with God, the ground is level at the cross. Oh, he says, I perceive this. And so here's the really cool thing. If you read the rest of the story, which we don't have time to, to, to read, Peter is declaring, we were wrong. God will save all people. And the result is that everybody did get saved. Now, here's the really neat thing. Before Peter goes up to Jerusalem in Acts uh, chapter 11, you need to remind yourself that he had six Jews with him on this little journey to Cornelius' house. So that when the angry Jews, and they come out right at the beginning of Acts chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, they're angry. And it says they contend with uh, Peter about what he did. So Peter, he rehearses everything in his mind, everything that had happened. And he tells them the story, but here's the really cool part. He's not alone because there's six witnesses who saw the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentiles as they trusted Christ. Now, you guys are saying, what's the big deal? Well, back in Galatians chapter 2, go back to Galatians chapter 2, because here it is. Peter comes to Antioch in light of what just happened in Acts chapter 10, and even Acts chapter 11, he sits down with Gentiles, he's eating with Gentiles, he's fellowshipping with Gentiles, everything's great. However, as soon as the Judaizers show up, he stops associating, he stops spending time, he stops eating with them. Instead, he starts hanging out with the false brethren. The idea of false brethren is that they're not brethren at all. They're trusting in a, a gospel that's not true. They're trusting in the gospel plus. Remember, it's a Jesus plus gospel. And so he starts hanging out with the false brethren. Guys, this is a picture of hypocrisy. Paul is saying, Peter, I have to call you out in front of everybody because you are living a life right now in this moment that is inconsistent with the Jesus that you say is alive and well in your heart. And folks, the reality is that you and I cannot allow this to take place in our lives. Peter believed the gospel. He knew the gospel. He even preached the gospel, but his life was not reflecting the gospel. And verse 14 says, But when I saw they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jew, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? He said, You're a hypocrite. Your behavior 
is hypocritical because you're saying one thing, but now you're doing another. You said it's okay to hang out. You said it's okay to fellowship. It's okay to eat. But now when the Jews, when the pressure comes, young person, when the pressure comes at high school, this is where we get the picture, right? I'm a Christian. I went to summer camp doing big things for Jesus. You don't know that person. Come on, come on, hang out with us. Do what we do. And so what we do, and I'm, I, I love Trevor, so Trevor lets me use him as illustration, right? But it works with parents too. We go to church and we fellowship with believers on Sunday. But then Monday through Saturday, don't talk to me about Jesus. Don't, don't, talk to me about, don't talk to me about the things of God. Folks, that's just as hypocritical as Peter was. Young people, if you go to school, that, that old crowd, by the way, if they're trying to get you away from Jesus, they're not a friend of yours. If, if that's their goal, if that's their goal, young people, you're going to college, if your professor's goal is to tell you that Jesus is not real, then you just need to just disassociate, right? Take the test, get the degree, but disassociate with yourself, with the professor who tells you that Jesus is not Lord of all. By the way, there's a lot of them who will be doing that. Paul says, you're, you're acting as a hypocrite. He says, I have to call you out. He says, he says, you're hanging out with true believers, and then when the false brethren come, you're like disassociating with the believers, and you're saying, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're bowing under the pressure of the world. Oh, we have to be careful of living a hypocritical life. And by the way, it's not legalistic. Let's just put something to bed. It's not legalistic to, watch what I say here, lovingly confront a brother or sister who's living a hypocritical lifestyle. That's called Christianity. But I also want to caution you because there's a lot of times, as I told our Bible study class this morning, we have a tendency, as Pastor Skinner used to say, to get our halo on too tight. We think we're something and we think everybody else is nothing. we got to be careful of judging other people while we too are living a hypocritical lifestyle. Am I right? And Oh, you say, well, where do you get that from? Well, Romans chapter 2, one verse is all I need. Look at verse number 1. Look at this screen. It says, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. Inexcusable is not a good phrase when it comes from God. Just, just saying. There are, you're inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemns, condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same thing. Oh, be careful of judging one another. But if we want to take the advice of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 that says, uh, when you see a brother or sister overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, in a spirit of humility, restore one another. Oh, listen, that's, that's okay. That's, that's part of being a Christ follower. And so he defends against legalism, he defends against uh, hypocrisy, but here's the really cool part. Look at the last part of our verse, our chapter in verse 15. Paul's defending the gospel and our justification by faith. Look at verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of Gentiles, knowing that a man, notice this, verse 16 is so powerful. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. In other words, you cannot work your way to heaven. He says, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? And Paul says, God forbid. God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice he finishes, he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He says, if my righteousness came by doing this or doing that, then guess what? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? That's silly. That's foolish. Why would God send his son to die on a cross if I can work my way to heaven? If I could appease God or I could be approved by God by the things that I think, the things that I say, and I could do, and I could get my salvation through those things, why did he have to die? The word justified there in verse 16 and 17 is translated as this. It means to render or to regard or to count someone as righteous. Please remember this. Just because you have trusted Christ as your Savior does not make you righteous. You and I have been counted as righteous. We are still sinners. We're just saved by grace. We're covered by the righteousness of Almighty God. Here's the point. I've used this illustration many times. Here I am, a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. When I trust Christ, here's what happens. Justified. The blood of Jesus that cleanses me and washes me, right? It covers me. I'm still a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. But God counts me as being justified. He says, he says, oh, there's one, there's one who honors me by honoring my son. And I love my son so much that if you honor him, guess what? Bam, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to count you as being righteous, even though you are a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner. Thank you, God. Thank you for that, right? It's like, thank you for reminding me what I am. He says, I'm going to count you as being righteous, even though you're not. Oh, how beautiful is that? That's awesome. I like to do that at home, baby. Here I am. I didn't do what I was supposed to count me as righteous, right? It doesn't always work that way in the home. Job 14, 4 says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Again, I got news for you. The answer is no, not one. Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. But in the middle of verse 16, the only way, the Bible says, the only way that you and I can experience hope is through faith. Notice where it says, But by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus, that we might be, there it is, rendered, counted, uh, 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 covered, right? We can be rendered or counted as righteous in Jesus Christ, by the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans 5.1, which I shared with you last week, says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, we have peace with God because we have been justified by God. That's it. That's it. I don't have peace with God because I can do this or I can do that or I look good or I smell good or whatever, right? It's because 
I have peace with God because he justified me. I put a big box around this, so I want to read it just as I wrote it. I said, how amazing is it that the creator, the sustainer, and the holy judge of this universe offers you and I this free gift of his grace. And then, at the very second that you and I, by faith, receive his gift, by placing our trust and our confidence in his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sin, at that very second, he declares that I am righteous, that I am innocent of all charges. He declares that I'm accepted. He declares that I am now able to be at peace with him. Oh, what an amazing God we serve. The righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible says, and, and really it's an encouraging verse, in verse number 21, the Bible says, For he, notice, who's he? God. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him again at Jesus. That's how we are made righteous, through Jesus Christ. As we close, I think it's important to look at the, where Paul, he says, here's the cool thing. Because you've been justified, because we're not to live according to the legalism, because we're not to live as hypocrites, he says, here's the opportunity we have. We have an opportunity to live in a way that brings God honor and glory. In verse number 19, Paul says this. He says, I live for God by dying to the law. He says, here's how, I, here's how I can live for Christ. I can actually live for God and Christ by dying to the law. This idea of living according to works and self-righteousness. But here's the beautiful verse that we have heard so many times. In verse 20, Paul is teaching us that faith is not only the instrument of my justification and my salvation, but he is saying that faith is what enables him and it enables you and I to live out our faith Minute by minute, day by day, week after week, month after month, and yes, year after year after year. Notice verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Essentially, and this is key, folks, Paul is saying that the truth is that it is impossible it's impossible, let's keep that verse up there if we can. It's impossible for you and I to live the way that we were before Christ came in. If you say that Jesus has come in on the inside, Paul says it is impossible for you to live the way you did before. You say, well, I struggle with sin. He didn't say you wouldn't struggle with sin. In fact, he says in Romans chapter 7 that he was the biggest one that had a problem with it. He said, the things that I know I should do, those are the things that I struggle with. And the things that I know that I shouldn't do, those are the things that I find myself doing. But he says this. He says, if Christ is coming, it's going to be impossible to live the same way. Notice, he says, I'm crucified with Christ. He says, I'm dead to the law. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to the selfish thoughts, words, and deeds that have plagued my life. But then he goes on and he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, I live. But notice what he says. It's not me. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. It's not about me. In fact, I put in my notes, uh, quite honestly, it's the I that usually gets us in trouble. I want, I need, I said it this way, I want it this way. Uh, I thought everything was about me. I want, I want, I want, and I want it right now. 
It's the eyes that get us into trouble. But Paul says, nevertheless, I live, yet not I. He was saying, my life is no longer about me. My life is about Jesus because I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead to the law. I'm dead to the sin. I'm dead to my selfish thoughts, words, and deeds. And he says, I'm still alive, but guess what? It's no longer about me. Everything, everything is about Jesus. And he says, he goes on, he says, but Christ lives in me. And folks, here's the point I wrote down. I can only live, and you can only live, and I can only love, and we can only love like Jesus if Christ is alive inside of us. You can go out here and try and fool people for a while, but if Christ is not alive inside of your heart, you will, you will falter. And if we try to do it in the flesh, we will falter. And Paul says this as he closes this verse. He says, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. I think about that song, and I close. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory. Somebody back there singing it. Guys, the Bible says to walk by faith and not by sight. The only way that I am enabled to walk by faith and not by sight is to remind myself daily that I have crucified myself to Christ. But I still have an opportunity. I still have a wonderful life that he has given me. But it's not about me anymore. It's about him. I have to live my life according to his will, according to his word, according to his ways. And that's when my life takes meaning. That's when my life begins to take shape. And that's the beautiful thing about Galatians. And so I put down in our notes, Lord, help me and help us to guard against living a life of legalism and hypocrisy. God, encourage me to celebrate the justification I have through Jesus Christ. But finally, Lord, strengthen me. Strengthen me to live a life by faith, a life that brings you honor and glory. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.